1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is It Jaws? Hello and welcome to Is It Jaws? I'm Paul Spitaro and this time out I am joined by Mr. Brian Hughes of the Third Degree Podcast, Third Degree Burn Podcast, excuse me. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Ah, thanks for coming on. And at Brian's suggestion, today we are covering the 1971 Steven Spielberg feature debut, Duel. Now, some might say that this was a TV movie and we shouldn't be covering it on here, but there's a couple of things. First of all, it's my show. I get to make the rules. Uh, <laughs> second of all, I've or we've already covered Lonesome Dove on here, which was a TV miniseries. And third of all, this was released in movie theaters in Europe. Yep. So I think it qualifies purely on ba the basis of rule number one, but we'll go, we'll, we'll run with all those reasons. Uh, this is a movie I saw when it was new, back in 1971, and it was shown on television, and I would have been, I don't know when in 1971 it was shown, I guess I would have been November 13th, so I would have been just eight years old at that time, and would it shock you to find out that it scared me? No, not at all, not at all, I mean, I got scared of the truck when I was a little kid, especially the headlight moment in the t in the tunnel mm. i mean that scared the crap out of me <laughs> see see as as a kid i found it frightening just because of the physical threat mm -hmm. and as an adult i find it frightening more conceptually just the fact that there could be somebody that crazy out there and that something like this could happen um it, it does not seem totally you know there's no point where it seems totally unrealistic although uh this, you know, just the, the circumstance is way, way out there. Uh, but, you know, Steven Spielberg, I think, really laid the groundwork for his career in this movie. Oh, definitely. There, there wouldn't be Jaws if you didn't have this movie first. And he does, you know, to 
just jump ahead to the end of the movie, he does have a connection there because mm-hmm. uh, the sound effect at the end of the movie is the same sound effect as the shark is dropping into the water at the end of Jaws. And uh, Spielberg did that as a uh, tribute to this movie for what he says is giving him his career. Let me ask you, you, you say you saw it when it first came out. So it's first on TV as a movie of the week. And... Did, I mean, was it one of those things that stayed with you all those years so that you always recognized it, or was it just something that you saw later and you read, oh, I remember that? No, no, it's it's the former. I always remembered. Like, this this was always one that, that stayed with me. There was this, there was the Night Stalker, uh, the, oh, Night, yeah. the Night Strangler. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a couple of other TV, you know, Channel 7 used to do its movie of the week, which I think this was on that. Uh there was also uh, one called A Short Walk to Daylight. Uh, there was like an earthquake that trapped people down in the subway and they had to make their way out. There was another one with James Brolin called Trapped, where mm-hmm. he was mugged in a department store and knocked out. And when he woke up, the store was all closed and they had released the Dobermans in the store to protect it. Oh, wow. Uh, See, I don't remember these. I don't. I mean, the thing is, like with this one, I remember... Uh, as a little boy, uh, we just moved to Texas, and I guess it was about 1973, and we watched it one night on TV as it was on, and that was that was my first experience seeing it because I, I, it it even had the 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 scene with the train, mm-hmm. which if I if I understand right, that wasn't in the original broadcast. Right, and I've seen it enough times over the years that it all blends to me, and if I didn't read that that was a later created thing, I you know I would have. Uh, done a personal Mandela effect and just remembered it as having been in it all along. Uh, There's that scene which apparently was added and the scene with the school bus Mm -hmm. was added as well. Uh, And I think they said one other. The the opening drive out. At least parts of that. Now, And the thing is, I'll be honest, you know, of course when I first saw it as a little kid, I don't remember the, the pulling out of the driveway and you know, driving all that and listening to the radio and all that. I I just remember you know everything that happened with the truck. And it was years later, you know, watching it that I finally you know see all that and and you know that that pulled me in because you're learning something or you're hearing something that, that that's kind of leading into the rest of the movie when you're listening to the whole radio bit. Right. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you my memory is that specific of you know every little scene like that. Uh, I don't. I don't think I want to read the entire synopsis of this, although it's mm-hmm. not a. It's not that long, but just to kind of bring it to its most simple. If people haven't seen this already, uh, Dennis Weaver plays a uh, traveling salesman, and he's driving on a business trip, and he encounters this massive truck, uh, and. At first, the guy just seems like a jerk, the driver of the truck, who you never see his face through the movie. And then as the movie goes on, it just escalates and escalates to the point where it's, you know, the guy's trying to kill him. Uh, you know, trying to run him off the road, and, and he's playing, ga- you know, various kind of psychological games with him. And although there are other people in the movie, it really is a one-man show. Yeah. Den- Dennis Weaver carries this movie along with, the you know the the ex- excellent direction and uh, excellent soundtrack, excellent just building of suspense really. Uh, but that's that's you know the the plot in a in a nutshell. Uh, 
and it it just like I said, it it seems like okay, I could see this happening, and that's what makes it truly frightening. I think what helped make the movie work so well is that it was like this perfect combination of of so many things. You know, Spielberg being so young and hungry. I mean, he was told he had to film this in ten days. And even he was trying to figure out how he was going to do it. But as he, you know, got the movie put together and worked with the production crew and and the drivers and everybody else, things really came together, especially the way that they were, you know, setting up all the shots, that they gave him a couple more days. It actually took him 12 days to do all the actual shooting. Right. If you can believe that, which I, I don't think there's any movie that could be shot in 12 days now. But without... Yeah, uh, the the stunt drivers. I think this movie would have suffered without the stunt drivers that they had. They had some of the best. Right. Yeah. No. Definitely, because they were able to get some shots that that again build up the suspense and uh, different angles from the car or of the car as, as he's driving along. Um, you know, he's driving on these these roadways often that are like treacherous. Mm-hmm. And he's having to build up to you know fairly high speeds because he's trying to escape this madman. Uh, and again, it just it just again it builds up the suspense. But it's filmed in a way where you find yourself like grabbing a hold of the arms of your chair because you know you can you start putting yourself in the seat of the car in your mind. Yeah, you can feel it too because you you're watching this car, which is a a, a new Plymouth, back then it was new as a 1970 Plymouth Valiant, which is not what you think of as a big car, a fast car, a muscle car, anything. You, you know, it kind of limited, weak. So you feel like it's always getting ready to to go over the edge or or fall apart or whatever by the end. You know, it's just the car itself became a character as much as the truck did. And the truck truly was a character, and uh, you know we probably probably should be talking about Dennis Weaver's performance more before we get to that. But let's talk about the truck just the same. Yeah. Uh, Spielberg made a point of not showing the truck driver any more than he needed to, and what he needed to was he showed an arm where the truck driver kind of waves him on, uh, and you saw some like snakeskin boots uh, at one point when he's walking around the truck. But that's it. You don't I'm kicking the tires. Yeah, the, you don't. The, you that, don't. You don't see. Uh, you never see his face, and you really never even see his torso. Uh, and and it makes for what what it does, and what Spielberg intended, because and I, you know I don't want to speak for him, but he's made it pretty clear that this is the case. He wanted the truck to be the monster, the villain. Mm-hmm. He didn't want the driver to be. So you know the truck is. Uh, what is it? It's a Peter Bill. Peterbilt 281 tanker truck with the, the word flammable in huge letters on it. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, like kind of rusted out and uh, just Oil very... Oil coming out of every orifice. Yeah, uh, and just... it's got five different license plates on the front. To... Now, did, did you just think that that was where he'd been? You know, you know what I, I saw that as is I just assume... You know, I give the guy a, a backstory in my mind. I assume he's done this before. Yes. And absolutely. those are—I I feel like those are the trophies of of 
other people he's done this to who haven't survived it. All in different states, all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how you would go about getting that and doing that and not having it come back to bite you in the ass, but that's kind of the way I see it. And, you know, because uh, I've never seen a truck with multiple license plates on it before. I, I had, when I was a kid and did a lot of road traveling with my father in the summers, and we would see a lot of these, you know, it, it wouldn't be like the big corporate ones. Like if you saw Beacons or, or whatever, the, the movers or whatever, you didn't see that. But when you saw the mom and pop trucks, mm-hmm. um, you would see multiple license plates like on the back. It might be something and, where different states require you to have you, to be licensed in their state in order to drive through it. I don't even know, you know, what the trucking laws are. You know, perhaps yeah. if Chris Warden is listening, he can give us a little uh, insight into the whole truck driving experience and how that works but uh you know even if there is a legitimate reason uh you know legally why you needed to have those extra plates on there i still prefer my version yeah no no and and that's the thing is like they didn't put them on the front they only put them on the back so by having them on the front there's something different there anyway and, uh, and and that's what I always thought it was. I always it made me always think of the airplane battle where the guy goes and puts the check mark out on the outside of his airplane on his kills. Right, exactly. That's that's pretty much exactly the thought process I had for it. Um, I I really enjoyed the way the suspense got built as it went along. You know, first he just seemed mm-hmm. kind of like a jerk. And you could see, you know, in, in Dennis Weaver's performance, he's, he, you know, he's he's at the same thing. He's, oh, this is great. You're just beautiful. Thank you for that. You know, like that kind of thing. He's just annoyed by him. And then the dr- truck gets in front of him and it goes, you know, exceptionally slow. And then the, the driver, you know, puts his arm out and waves him to pass him up. And as he goes to pass him up, there's another car oncoming so that he almost does a head-on collision. And, it, it, you know, you see he, like, bolts upright in his seat because he can't believe the guy just did that to him. And that's when you know, okay, this is some serious stuff going on here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Dennis Weaver's character, though, he, you know, they, they had that scene with him and his wife on the phone. He's talking to his wife on the phone, and she basically kind of accused him of not being a man. You know, there was all these attacks on his... You know his ability to stand up for himself, or stand up for her in that matter. Well, and that even carries itself into this, the scene when he stops in the diner, mm-hmm. and he's first sitting there, and you, you know you could hear his thoughts, and he's thinking, okay, you know the the truck obviously stopped also, so he knows that the driver of the truck is probably somewhere in there, and he starts thinking over, you know, what he's going to say. And, and at one point, like, his thought process is, I, I don't know what I did to make you angry, but why don't we sit down and I'll buy you a beer and blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, he he's choosing, and I don't want to say the wimpy way out, but he's choosing the, uh, the non-threatening, non-confrontational way out, if he can. Right. But then eventually he sees the guy who he thinks is the driver, and, you know, we're, we're certainly led to believe he is not. Uh, and he does confront him in a more aggressive fashion, and he almost gets his ass kicked for it. Yeah, well, he did. I mean, he got gut punched. Uh, I mean, he wound up on the on the floor there with that guy. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that was yeah. 
one of the things I like about it is, you know, you never do find out if the driver is in the diner. And for all you know, that guy that, that he has that confrontation with could be the driver. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, you know, you never know, which is really more true to life, I, or at least in, in my mind. You know, some, sometimes you don't get answers to every question. Uh, and I, I don't always like when filmmakers use that because I think sometimes it's a cop-out. Uh, Sopranos. Uh, but in, <laughs> in, in this instance, I, I think it worked quite effectively. Well, this was, I mean, this was all off of the story that Richard Matheson himself had written. Uh, they published it in Playboy originally. And Richard Matheson, uh, for anybody who's not familiar with him, has, you know, had a hell of a career as a writer. Uh, and I guess the most famous things he wrote were I Am Legend, mm-hmm. uh, which is was filmed four, four times at this point. Uh, he wrote the Twilight Zone episode with William Shatner, The Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. He mm-hmm. wrote The Incredible Shrinking Man. Uh, he wrote another another TV movie that was uh, quite famous, was the uh, Trilogy of Terror. He wrote the, oh, one, yeah. the one with the little fetish doll. Yeah, oh man, that one got that, me. That was the one story that, that really creeped everybody out, and that is, yeah. you know, we were talking earlier about TV movies, that's one of the ones that has burned in my memory uh, over the years. Now, he also wrote um, The Enemy Within on Star Trek, didn't he? I think he did. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, he wrote He wrote that. I mean, he he just incredibly prolific. Um, and, of course, I saw, I mean, of course, I Am Legend was originally done by Vincent Price's The Last Man on Earth. Right. I and was then, originally familiar with that as The Omega Man with Charlton Heston. Yeah, Charlton Heston. Yeah, I saw that. And, but he also wrote The Incredible Shrinking Man. Mm-hmm. Which that was a, a very early one. I it, this guy just has an incredibly long list, but this is the last short story that he ever wrote. Because as he was writing it, he realized that he was making it all. All of his short stories were was one man against you know incredible odds, overcoming them. Well, and that is almost the textbook definition of a lot of uh, Alfred Hitchcock's movies. Mm-hmm. And when I was watching it or re, you know rewatching it in uh, preparation for recording that that came to mind to me that you know it's the one ordinary guy struck in an extraordinary circumstance which is like I said the prototypical uh, Alfred Hitchcock scenario. And I I think you know in in many ways, the suspenseful filmmaking is reminiscent of some of Hitchcock's styles. And I know yeah. I know Hitchcock was very big on storyboards, and apparently so is Spielberg. Now, did you see the storyboard that Spielberg used for this? I did not. It was basically a huge thing that went all the way around his hotel room. And, it, it, of course, it was a map of the roadways and it it looks like a blueprint basically for the movie itself where each spot was marked with what was going to happen all the altercations and everything and it uh, but it went the entire you know every it filled the walls of his hotel room up and down hmm. just huge well that's fascinating it's you know at this point in his career Spielberg had directed some TV episodes and Columbo Columbo, and I think the most famous thing he had done at that point was an episode of The Night Gallery, starring uh, Joan Crawford. 
Mm-hmm. And Marcus Welby. He did he did Marcus Welby as well at that time. And if if my understanding is correct, I think Spielberg was not accepted into film school. No, he got out of film school and went to join, and I can't remember the name of the, there was a, 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 a director that pulled him in and, you know, showed him, no, you need to start in TV. But Spielberg was only 20 when he started directing and he was doing these things. And of course, working with someone like Joan Crawford or, um, what's the guy that plays Marcus Welby? Robert, you know, you Robert find, Young. Yeah, Robert Young. Yeah, you're not you're not directing them. You're you're letting them do what they do. You're directing everything around it. You're basically saying cut, you know, action. Well, a very but, good friend of mine uh, who I actually took some film classes with and actually went on to a career in film uh, mm. has directed uh, some things. Uh, you know, significantly, he directed some episodes of Dexter. And I wow. remember at the time... Uh, him putting a comment on Facebook, he said something to the effect of, uh, I can't even think of what the actor's name who played Dexter. Uh, he says, I, I was just, today I was telling him and John Lithgow what to do, and they were listening to me. Wow. <laughs> you know, like wow. he, was, he was impressed by the fact that they were, you know, that they were so compliant that, you know, he's, he's a brand new director out there and that they would actually, you know, value his opinion. Uh but that's, you know, I do think there's something to be said for that. And I think there are many actors who are not as magnanimous. And if they're there with a young director, they'll say, no, this is how I do it. End of story. Don't even, you know, don't bother me. Yeah, like Shannon Doherty uh, admonishing Kevin Smith for giving her a line reading. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing that story when they were filming Mall Rats. Yeah, because she was such an accomplished actress. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, like you said, you know, this was he was very, very young, and um, he had uh, read the story at someone else's assistant's. Uh, his assistant, that's right, had read it in Playboy, and uh, so you know he read it and found out that Matheson actually had built up a screenplay for it, but he couldn't get anyone to buy it, and so he lobbied to get it and got all the the thing, but they gave him a very short timetable to work on. Right. And like I said, he got, he just, it was that perfect thing. Now they had, uh, while he was filming, he didn't get to see the dailies. He had five editors working to put this movie together. And so they were able to to get everything done really, really quick because they wanted it to premiere just, what, weeks after. I mean, just a, a very short time after, and it's a shoestring budget. But if he, if he had not had Carrie Lofton, who was the, uh, the stunt driver that drove the truck. And, and you have an uh, interesting his, trivia fact about him, which we might as well get in. Yeah, uh, it, again, he was a truck driver that, that drove the truck the entire thing. You can really see some skills in there, especially during the scene where he turns around to get to the bus um, or when he's going af- after the after Dennis Weaver in the, at the snake pit. And uh, it turns out that he is the same driver that drove the truck that killed Edith Keeler. In Star Trek, and it, w- it would be almost cool if he was the same character, and that was that was one of the oh. license plates on the front of his truck. <laughs> <laughs> but what's really funny is I, I sat there and looked at it even further. He was a truck driver in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I couldn't find out if he was actually the one that drove the truck, you know, that did the the, the sideways, you know, that turned over sideways. They also used it for that really long scene where Indy goes under the truck and everything. Mm. But uh, his specialty is truck stunts. 
Yeah, uh, and, and he's and got he, a very long filmography. But in the 70s and 80s, he's just like in everything. The A-Team, Dukes of Hazard, Knight Rider, Fall Guy. Uh, in the 70s, he was in the, all the Disney movies, Herbie Rides Again, Her, uh, The Love Bug, Cat from Outer Space. He was just, and, and he was in the Cannonball Run movies as well, BJ and the Bear. Yeah, most of just, his most of his uh, filmography credits are driver, 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 driver. Yeah, yeah. He and he had a buddy, um, uh, Dale Van Sickle. Now Dale was the stunt driver that drove the the Valiant when you were seeing the long shots of it. Though Dennis Weaver did did you know all the internals and he did a lot of his own driving. Uh, and you can see that in, in some of the things he did because he'll drive up on the drive up on the on the curbs and drive up off the road. Uh, you see a lot of it he did himself, but when you didn't see him, it was Dale Van Sickle. And they were he and Carrie Lofton were buddies, and so they had that kind of rhythm with each other. Now I uh, I forgot where I was going to go. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, did, there there's definitely some interesting driving choices and I'm, I'm thinking about it more from the actual film not from the filming right um you know dennis weaver is supposed to be a traveling salesman so he's on the road a lot so i guess you know his driving skills are probably better than the average person and there's some scenes in there where he's got to try and kind of finagle his way you know with the car into a certain position and i just thought his his the best moment he had in the movie as far as his acting goes is there's a scene when he kind of outmaneuvers his way around the truck and mm-hmm. he cuts in front of it and he's just like so psyched that he he outdid this guy and he thinks it's over at this point yeah and he just starts like he lets out this like cackle and i just thought it was like i thought it was a great acting moment actually cuz you know like his his joy is tangible at that moment yeah, it's it's also like the scene where he falls asleep next to the train tracks, mm-hmm. and he has that. It's almost like a waking dream because the train is coming behind him, but it sounds like the truck to him at first, and he wakes up in that shocked expression, and then he just starts laughing, and it's like a hysterical laughter of someone who's just been through something so you know like this, and he doesn't even realize it's not over. Yeah, well, that's you know just by way of the plot he he does a kind of a double back you know he gets he gets some distance between him and the truck and then he pulls off the road and backs up so that he can't be seen and lets the truck drive by Mm -hmm. and then he's talking to himself and says you know i'm going to stay here you know at least an hour you know so you're out of my hair and you know hopefully the police will pull you over but no matter what you know at least you're, you're not with me anymore so then he falls asleep. So you're thinking not only did he wait an hour, like he said, but he probably waited even several hours. Yeah. And uh, so, you, you know, you're, you're confident at that point that not only has an hour gone by, but probably several hours. And then the train wakes him up, and that's, a you know, a moment of... I think it's presented well. Again, you know, Spielberg has a way of just, just framing a scene and, and building it up. So that you know, you're shocked the same way he is when the train finally gets there, mm-hmm. uh, and then it does, and you know you have the same moment of relief that he does, and then he pulls out onto the road and he's driving along, and you don't really get an idea of how far he gets, but at some point he's driving along and he's confident that everything is safe because he's driving at a good speed, and 
he slams on the brakes and the tr- and his car is like swerving and and you know almost losing control and then you see that the truck pulled over on the side of the road and is waiting for him yeah and that's just such a great moment great moment in a it's- terrifying way <laughs> yeah you know the the thing that i that really helped it you know really helps a, a lot of things in the movie is the and i i don't know that we can call it a soundtrack but uh, but it, it, the the soundtrack in the movie is not your typical you know musical thing. Uh, it's mostly a collection of sounds and African drums and and other things that have been put in there, which was really funny because a lot of those got reused in a lot of other shows over the seventies, and we heard heard a lot of it here and there, just a little bits and pieces, but not the main you know the drum beats and stuff. But it the soundtrack there is more in common with the soundtracks coming out today than the ones that came out back in the seventies. Well, the the soundtrack music in this was composed by Billy Goldenberg, and mm-hmm. I I thought it was very effective. I think it it, it really yes. is moody. You know, I was always, I was kind of disappointed that it's not John Williams. Uh, there's there's a point in it. You know, I mentioned uh, Alfred Hitchcock earlier. There's a point where the music seems reminiscent of the Psycho music. Yes. And, and he was really good at getting the mood there in, in every scene there was that, that he worked. Um, it's funny, though. This guy was the um, – he was a John Williams of TV. He came up with the themes for Del Vecchio and Kojak and Rhoda and, <laughs> and a bunch of other shows, Harry O and, and whatnot. Elias Smith and Jones. Yep. Uh, I mean, he, he was all over. Um, but this was, this was so unmusical – of a of a soundtrack because it was more just sounds and rhythms and such happening and there was that one sound that he had that he used throughout that always seemed to me it always makes me think of the passage of time especially when they were like showing Dennis Weaver in different long shots as they the change the camera angle and it got used in other other movies that way mm-hmm. that kind of that kind of sound right. Is very good at setting the mood, and because it helped help those scenes right there, like like you were talking about, kind of give a passage of time, make you think more time had passed than maybe had. Because this whole thing takes place over the course of one day. Yeah, and it, like one of the things that goes on is, and it and it becomes very believable as it goes on, is Dennis Weaver's or David Mann is the character's name. His inability to get any help to take care of his problem. You know, he stops at that uh, the the snake lady stand, mm-hmm. uh, and he's going to call up and uh, you know call the police to to get some help. And the truck driver at that point is no longer interested in uh, being anonymous or you know having the world just think that he's a crazy man because he drives right through the whole thing you know destroying this woman's property and she's freaking out and she's played by uh, lucille benson who is a uh, she's she's one of those character actors that you see and you're like oh okay i remember her i thought and i think wrongly so because i couldn't find her on it i thought she was the lady from star trek 4 who gets a new kidney because she's got a similar voice now I knew that she was in 1941. She basically played the same scene in 1941 with John Belushi, where mm-hmm. he landed his plane on the highway. 
and tells her to fill it up with ethyl. Right. But uh, that that was the only thing I, I, I recognized her from. I remember her from Halloween 2. And a few other movies. Like I said, she's one of those people where you see her and you're like, okay, I recognize her. I've seen her before. And you may not be able to exactly place when and where. Uh, and she's, you know, she's a little bit nuts herself because as, as the snakes <laughs> are getting... Uh, you know, freed and destroyed or whatever, and she's she's actually saying, "Oh, my babies!" You know, <laughs> and she's so proud of them. You know, when he first pulls in, Dennis Weaver, she's like, "Oh, and you could look at the snakes." Yeah, uh, that and, and 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 that one rattlesnake took a, a a snap at him real quick. That that actually that scene always freaked me out. Where first he gets up and he's got the spider on his leg and the snake is snapping at him. Yeah. And of course, you know he doesn't just swat the, the the tarantula off of him. He he kind of shaking hand picks it up and <laughs> and knocks it off of him. You know, right? It it it, it wasn't a very manly uh, swat, so to speak, which uh, you know just enhances that character of his. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think I think there's a lot of little moments like that that create his character and uh just you know define him mm-hmm. the um there's one of the more infamous uh scenes is when uh he's driving his car away from him and he kind of gets out of control and slides into the fence right and that scene of course is was was used as stock footage and uh we saw it years later on an episode of the incredible hulk and when when Spielberg saw that, he got really upset, found out there was nothing he could do about it, but he made it a clause in his contract on every movie he's done since that they cannot use any of his stuff as stock footage. Yeah, I, I read that, that he was upset by the fact that they used it that way and has made sure that that never happened again. Uh, but I, I never actually noticed one any of the scenes. That's kind of cool that you saw it in The Incredible Hulk. Uh, what else is there in here? I'm just trying to think if there's any specific moments that are worth uh, bringing out. Again, you know, for for a movie that the the plot is fairly simple, it does pretty much, you know, keep you engaged the entire time. The original running time on this was 74 minutes, and then they added 15 minutes to, you know, for the theatrical uh, release. And and I would guess, you know, one of the scenes from the well, Two of the scenes from the theatrical release that are added uh, are worth mentioning. The first is when uh, when he deals with the uh, school bus driver, and that guy. I think in our lives we've all met that guy, and we, and we hate <laughs> yeah. him. Yes. You know, he's like, "Oh yeah, you could do this. Go ahead, go do it." And then uh, you know, you get stuck, and he's like, "Oh, I thought it was going to be all right." <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then uh, you know. Man is trying to uh, warn the children not to be, you know, in in a position of danger, and he's like, "Oh, it's all right, it's all right," you know, and he, he you know, I think you're the crazy one. He starts telling them. Yeah. Uh, but then, and then there's the scene by the railroad where you know, man stops his car because there's a rail a train train coming, and then as the train is coming, the truck comes up behind him and starts pushing the car towards the rail t- t- the towards the train. Now you got to think a a truck that size. I don't care how tight you hold down your brakes. A truck that size is going to be able to move you in front of that train or into the train if it wants. Yeah, that was a that was a, a tease. That yeah, was a bully moment. The driver's moment. just playing with him. 
Yes. And cat and mouse. He just swatting the mouse. Yeah. That that right there though, as a kid, that was the, one of those scenes that made me that had me. I was laying on the floor watching. I started kicking with my own feet, trying to hold my ground. You know. Yeah. Well, that's like I said. You know, you're sitting in the chair and you you start holding on to the arms of the chair because, you know, it. it there's not a lot of movies that have done that to me. Uh, I, I can tell you the one one I can think of is uh, in the in Die Hard when uh, Bruce Willis is in the uh, elevator. Uh, and and he's you know and he almost falls, mm-hmm. and, and I remember kind of just grab, grabbing onto my seat because of my uh, innate uh, fear of heights. Uh, the movie The Walk actually did that for me, uh, but this is one that did it. So you know, well done yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, this movie is great at at I mean it 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 did some it showed that Spielberg was really good at ramping up the tension and creating those white knuckle situations because as you get further and further towards the end the tension just starts to rise and rise and rise and then as David Mann's car starts to fail him I mean there's that the real good long scene towards the end where he is just on the road and he's like if I'm going up the hill and I can keep the speed up I can pull away from him because he can't keep up with me on the grade and then his car starts to fail him because of the 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 uh, of radiator check, check hose. Radio in the hose. Yeah. Because <laughs> early on he gets he stops for gas and the guy tells him you're gonna need a new radiator hose. Oh, I haven't heard of that before. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's always trying to upsell us, but yeah. And then uh, he tried to get the lady at the snake place to replace the hose before the truck came in and, and messed everything up there. But you know, there, you know, of course, everything's starting to fail. The car's starting to heat up. The engine's knocking, and that tension just starts to ramp up. And then he starts going down the hill, and he's building up the speed, and he's barely got control of the car as it's sitting there and is going off the road to the left and to the right as he's trying as it's building up speed. And he's getting what like 60 miles an hour, and then all of a sudden he lost control and turns sideways and slams into the hill. Right. And. I mean that leads us into the the that point of the final confrontation, and it's like again you know it is the the the, the animal getting cornered as he as he goes up the dirt road and then comes to that point where there's a cliff and there's a fence and there's no place to go, and he realizes he has to face it and and and, and this is that moment and the tension just gets ramped up more and more as it gets there so that. I'm sure if you're sitting in your chair that you're you're gripping it so hard you got white knuckles. And that I mean that of course you know there's a comparison to Jaws in it but this this right here gives you that same kind of comparison cuz it it almost feels like that moment where Brody's on the mast with the with the gun. Yeah, oh definitely. There's definitely some uh, a connection there. Uh throughout the movie, you know, you, David Mann is presented as it's, I don't think he's presented as less than a man. I think that's that's overstating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he's he's non-confrontational. He 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 will try to take the the non-confrontational way out, and they show us that. And it gets a little frustrating at some points when you you know you're trying to put yourself in his role. And the thing is, every time he tries to man up, his efforts get thwarted. Yeah. You know, he tries to do it in, in the in the diner. He you know, he, he finally mm-hmm. builds up his courage to confront the guy and he's got the wrong guy, or at least in theory he's got the wrong guy. Then yeah. he uh he tries to actually go over to the truck 
you know, to confront the guy man to man, and the driver pulls away. Yeah. So you know, he he never has an opportunity to roll up his sleeves and say, you know, that's it, I've had enough, until the very end when he finally comes up with a way in his own mind, you know, a, a way of of getting out of this, and it's you know at a you know it's at a fairly big cost. Uh, mm-hmm. If nobody has seen it already, I, I really don't want to spoil the very end of how you know how he does ultimately, you know, come out of it. Uh, I'd rather leave it because if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth seeing. Uh, if, if not only for the quality of the movie, but also just for its historical place as, as Spielberg's first feature, I think it's definitely worth seeing. And uh, for anybody interested in seeing it, it's available to watch for free on YouTube. So, you know, you don't have to worry about where, where you're going to get a copy of it. It's it's right there for you. Uh, but, like I you know, ultimately he doesn't have that final confront, confrontation until there's no choice. This is the only way. You know, it's either, it's, it's, you know, either he finds a way out of this or he's going to get killed. That's it. Those are the choices. And his reaction to what happens is so human. Yes. It, it just, just, yeah. I, I, I mean, just the, the, the emotional output right there was amazing. Again, Dennis Weaver, Dennis Weaver was just perfect for that role. No, I think this is before he did. Uh, what's him call it? Uh, McLeod. McLeod. They, they took a break from McLeod to let him film. Oh, this, he was, he was actually. already on McLeod at the time. They okay. started, as I understand, they started filming, but yeah, they took a break for him to let him film this. And it he had was, been on Gunsmoke before that. Right, but it was Touch of Evil that got him the job. Right, which if you've never it, seen that, it's definitely a movie to see as well. Yeah, very good. Yeah, but Spielberg, when he when they gave him Dennis Weaver as one of the names, he's just like, that's it, that's the one, that's the guy. And they're like, why? And he said, Touch of Evil. And he said, "Yeah, he's he's perfect for this, and he was. I mean, it just it, it one of those perfect pieces where everything fit together just right." Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think you know, you can see other people in the role, and maybe somebody could have done it justice. It's one it's one of the many parts on on classic movies that we look at that you say maybe somebody else could have done it as well, but I can't imagine anybody doing it better. I think he, you know, he hit all the notes that he needed to hit, and he he plays a real everyman. Uh, you know, his his reactions to things may not be exactly what we might do in the same situation, but it's never, you know, there's never a point where he does something where you feel like, oh, that's not justified, or I can't, you know, I can't relate to it somehow. Uh, yeah. You know, but he, you know, if they if they tried to make a, a remake of this today, they they couldn't do it. Like they they just couldn't do it because they wouldn't want a David Mann type character. They they'd want somebody else or something else that would and then it wouldn't be dual. It wouldn't be the David versus Goliath that we get here, and that's just b- beating everybody over the head with a, a two by four of what what it is. <laughs> but I'm I'm trying to think of of movies that are similar, uh, and there's definitely been you know car movies. You know you have Christine and things like that. The movie that comes to mind to me the most is the movie The Hitcher with Rutger Hauer. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen yeah. that, 
I, I haven't, and I've I've been wanting to watch that. It's one of those on my list of of I've got to watch. So yeah, and I know they they remade that recently with Sean Bean too, didn't they? I think they did. I didn't see the remake, yeah. but you know, in in a nutshell, it's uh, you know, C. Thomas Howell picks up Rutger Hauer as a hitcher, and then uh, for whatever reason. Rutger Hauer has just got it in for him, and you know he's he's a psycho and is doing all sorts of things, mental torture, and you know until there's a final confrontation between the two. Uh, that single-mindedness in the victim, I think, changes it from your you know your typical slasher movies or horror movies that you see mm-hmm. where where it's more random who they're going after until they finally settle in on whoever the protagonist of the story is. But has there been anything recently where the villain seems more like the truck than, you know, a person? And that I think that's the one thing that that we haven't gotten. Well, like I said, I, I, to, I mentioned Christine, yeah. which is kind of the case, but it's it's yeah. very, very different from this. Yeah. Um, you know, there's... Uh, I'm trying to remember, there's the, the short story by Stephen King called Trucks, which he made into Maximum Overdrive, which I think they also tried to make into something else at some point. Uh, but that's almost, that's where the, the trucks actually become sentient and uh, start killing people. It's still a little different. This this is more grounded in reality than that. Yes. Uh, so I, 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 don't, I can't think of anything, like I said, to me, off the top of my head, the Hitcher is the closest thing I can come up with in uh, in style, uh, but that's that's about it. I'm just trying to see here if if the Wikipedia page mentions anything. Uh, it has references in other works, but there's clearly not any uh, clear you know remake or anything. And like you said, I don't know if it would. I don't know if you'd be able to do it the same way. Uh, there's certain movies that if you try to remake them, it's going to seem either like you're going to fail. And not do it as well, or at best, all you're going to do is kind of mimic the original. Mm-hmm. I think that's why the remake of Psycho didn't succeed. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see any purpose in remaking this. I, I don't think they would, uh, I don't think they'd be able to outdo it. You know, because it's not dependent upon. CGI and special effects where you say, right. okay, we can do things now that we couldn't do then. There's, now there there's was, plenty of stunt effects, but they did them really, really well. Yeah, there was a movie in the 90s, late 90s, with Kurt Russell called uh, Breakdown, I believe. I remember uh, the name of that movie, but I don't remember any details of it. But yeah, that's where he's, you know, basically, he's he's looking for his wife who's missing because his car broke down in the middle of the desert. But uh, J.T. J- Walsh... I was just going to say, that has J.T. Walsh. Okay, I do remember who that. Who is great at playing the villain, and he's the villain in that movie. But obviously, he's the villain in that movie, where this one, we have the truck that's menacing, you know. Yeah, the and, truck. And still, but that's probably one of the closest things you're going to see. The truck is, no question about it, is the villain in this movie. And that was Spielberg's intent, and he was successful in doing that. And, you know, since we're not going to give away the ending, there, there is a, another tie to Jaws there. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about that. The sound effect? Yeah, the sound effect. Well, at, at the yeah, I think we could just give it in base, you know, in, in general. I, I wasn't sure if we had mentioned it already, but uh, the at the end of Jaws, when the, when the shark is... Uh, finally killed 
uh, and anybody who's listening to this who hasn't seen Jaws, I'd be really shocked. Uh, and the the shark is starting to drop to the to the bottom of the sea, and you hear that dinosaur sound effect, and that was used at the end of this movie or towards the end of this movie as well. Uh, and obviously this movie was before Jaws and Spielberg specifically put it into this movie as mm-hmm. an homage to what this movie meant to his career. Yeah. I mean, you mean putting it into Jaws? He put, yeah, that's, yeah. He, put, he took, he put, he put it in, the, he put it in this for whatever reason that he just felt it was effective and, and it was, uh, and then he used it again in Jaws just as a kind of a, an homage to himself, I guess. Yeah. Now, aside from Duel actually being on YouTube, there are a lot of little uh, mini-docs and such. There's actually a full uh, interview with Richard Matheson and others. If you if you search for Duel on, uh, on YouTube, you'll see a lot of videos, um, some with Spielberg talking about the making of, and then some with Richard Matheson and others. I, I didn't see any interviews with Dennis Weaver himself, though, and that was disappointing. Unfortunately, you know, he'd passed away many several years ago, and I think they did all this more recently within the last 10 years. Mm. Yeah, it would be interesting to hear his thoughts on this at this point, but I guess that's just not going to happen, unfortunately. No, no. But uh, I guess that leads us, unless you have anything else to add. No, that's that's pretty much it. So that leads us to the ultimate question. Is it yours? And I'll let you go first. Well, you know, looking at the Jaws scale, I have to say this is firmly planted to me as a high Jaws 2. It's something that uh, I love to watch from time to time. I love to show to other people. It's got a lot of watchability, but, you know, still, for what it is, it's still not quite Jaws. But it's what made Jaws. Yeah, I... You're you're echoing my exact thoughts about it. That it's it's really, I, I it's like I want to give it a Jaws because I'm hard pressed to come up with any flaw, mm-hmm. and for that reason I want to say it's done perfectly. Uh, I think if I want to try and come up with negatives on it, it doesn't particularly have any quotability because uh, there's not a lot of dialogue in the movie. Um, sure. you know, it's, it's not really a negative to the movie. It's just, you know, it's, it's not something I, I, it's not a movie I think you'd watch once a year. You know, it's not like a, you know, a movie you'd watch regularly, but I, I think periodically breaking it out and watching it again is certainly something that is an option. So it's like, I want to make it a Jaws, but I think it's just, it's on, it's, it's on a slightly smaller scale. And despite the fact that it, perfectly reaches the goals that it has set i think just because of it being a little smaller it it goes into the jaws 2 category but like you say it's a very high jaws 2 it's almost like jaws 2 with an asterisk yeah yeah absolutely but again you know with you and me we, we both have a similar experience with this movie having seen it as a kid and something that's been there you know through our life you show it to somebody today that hadn't seen it before, and it's kind of like Casablanca. You know, someone watches Casablanca, and they go, man, it's just full of cliches. But that's because, you know, they'd seen all the cliches since. They didn't realize this is where the cliches started. Yeah, exactly. This, this is the movie that, that created the cliches, and they weren't cliches when they were doing it. 
Right. And there's, there's there's numerous movies you can say that about, and this is this is one of them. And this is, you know, it's if like I said, if not only for the movie, which is really really good, just to see, you know, a, a young Steven Spielberg's work, and not only what he would become, but the early showing of what he already was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think you know it's it, as far as the you know the camera placement and and the just the build up of scenes it's it's all you know practically flawless uh i am almost disappointed that he you know that he wasn't more heavily involved in the editing i'm sure he was very heavily but i'm but it was done so quickly that i'm sure there's things that he wasn't that he, you know, was that, bicy- he that he couldn't be doing you know, he could only be in one place at a time yeah he was bicycling between five different rooms editing editing rooms and uh the, the 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 beauty of it is you sit there and talking about that last section where you know they go up the grade and then they go down the hill, and he says the guy that edited that 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 whole sequence did such an amazing job of being able to piece things together so it looked like one cohesive you know trail and everything uh, just you know it was amazing work by the editors but it you know it wasn't anything that he could sit there and just control one hundred percent. But it all worked out. Um, it's funny because in, in IMDb they only say that there's one editor, and that's Frank Morris. Um, but uh, no, he said there were there were five different editors working on there, and he didn't mention um, the gal that edited Jaws. So I don't believe that she was involved in that. All right. Well, I had... good choice is all I can tell you, Brian. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for for having me uh, do this one. Uh, and that's it for Duel. But if you'll uh, indulge me for just a moment, Brian, I'm gonna just mm-hmm. read a few emails. Sure. Okay. First one is from uh, our buddy Socrates, uh, and it's titled Bull Toad. It says, "Good morning, sir. I just finished your podcast on Jurassic Park." You and Dave mentioned the use of bull-toed DNA to build what was missing from the mosquito blood. I'm far from a scientist, and I'm no zoologist, but I think the bull-toed DNA was used in the story because it was able to adapt and change so quickly, like it can in the wild, when they need to reproduce asexually. All first inventions are flawed, especially with hindsight. Thank you for the great podcast, sir. When are you going to do Rambo 2? Uh, best regards, Socrates Alvarez. Uh, I'm not sure when I'm going to do Rambo 2, but it's definitely on the to-do list. So hopefully that'll get done. Uh, that's probably a, uh, Chris Tyler, uh, co-hosting vehicle, I would imagine. Uh, the next email is from Trey Hooks, and it's called Marvel Phase 2. Hey, Paul, another great episode. You've stated that you don't get enough listener feedback, which is criminal, so I'm hoping to help rectify that with some of my thoughts on the episode. You mentioned how Iron Man 3 made over a billion dollars internationally, but wasn't considered a big hit. I wonder if it was suffering in comparison to the box office for The Dark Knight, which for a while had the largest gross for a comic movie centered on a single hero. Both of you commented on the risk in Guardians of the Galaxy. I wonder if part of the willingness to take that risk was to put in the spotlight some IP they could exploit across the company without any previous licensing deals haunting them. I'm referring to the development of attractions at both Disneyland and Disney World. 
the latter of which is only possible because the Guardians characters were not part of Marvel's contracts with Universal. I enjoyed, and for the most part continue to enjoy, the Marvel films, but Phase 2 was when the franchise started to feel a bit schizophrenic. You would, have, you would have films like Guardians of the Galaxy, which is balls-to-the-wall gonzo, absurd with all the glorious ridiculousness on screen, but really there is no way around it if you're going to commit yourself to these characters, but then have others where you shy away from the comic book aspects or tone them down. I'm thinking of Batroc, who is a mercenary in plain clothes, just with the character's mm-hmm. color scheme, a la Smallville or Crossbones, who I don't think you can even tell is Crossbones unless you know the character's real name both in Winter Soldier. The most egregious for me is Scarlet Witch, who instead of hex magic has telekinesis and telepathy. You talked about some of the -the behind-the-scenes shifts, but Phase 2 also seemed to be where the studio machine they had built started to have conflicts with the talent they were hiring at an increased regularity, some of which impacted the final product. Finally, I think some of the sameness starting to settling in A common critique of the Marvel films is that all the villains are all one note and all fall into the pattern of the mirror of the hero. I think there is some truth in it. I mean, when I think of Iron Man's top three villains, two of them are men in armor. But Iron Man 3 still felt like it came to antagonists we were retreading ground we had already covered. But when you look at Ant-Man, they had to create another size-changing exoskeleton villain for him to fight. I mean, Egghead, Whirlwind, Black Knight, the Porcupine, the Voice, the Beasts of Berlin. Okay, maybe they made the right decision after all. But Killmonger and Black Panther really... But did Killmonger and Black Panther really need to end up in a different colored panther suit? Anywho, loved it as always, and looking forward to you and Blaine wrapping up the MCU in two weeks. Trey Hooks. Thanks for all that input, Trey. And... Brian, please feel free to kick in any comments if you want on any of these. Well, yeah, you know, going back to Iron Man 3 and the success of it, you know, the thing is Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2 both, you know, brought in just over $300 million domestically. And then Iron Man 3 brought in $400 million, you know, which is, is it's a jump, just a little jump above. But, you know, the reason why the foreign box office was so huge is because that was the first movie that actually embraced China. Mm-hmm. And so it, it brought in opportunities for a whole lot more money to come in overseas, and so it did. So, I, you know, I mean, I think the Iron Man movies had always had the, the same kind of market in the U.S., and they didn't expand further. But Robert Downey Jr.'s own, you know, stock went up with the Avengers movies, and that was fine. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, there's, there's so much that goes into planning out of who they're going to use and as villains and what movie's coming next and all of that. And I've just gotten to a point where I'm just along for the ride for the most part and trust that they're going to make good choices because there hasn't been an MCU movie that I haven't liked. They may, you know, they may range from I like them to I love them, but there's been nothing less than I like it. Well, I think that, that the thing that they're doing is actually kind of smart, and that is they're slowing down the production at least, uh, you know, of the movies themselves. You know, we're getting stuff that's going to be on TV. We're getting stuff that's going to be animated. I'm really looking forward to the What If series. But uh, the actual movies themselves, because they don't have the 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 big three, the, the mainstream shots anymore, they're slowing it down into what we're going to be getting next. And so it's going to be a while before we get, even get another Black Panther or Doctor Strange movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little concerned 
that they're going to let things slow down a little too much. But maybe, you know what, they've made good decisions before that I wasn't sure about. So believe me, I, you know, I'm, I'm not the guy who should be making these decisions, I'm sure. Well, so, yeah, I mean, Endgame was such a huge, huge event thing at the end of the of all that and of course far from home adds in there but far from home is its own beast uh you know it's got it's it in some ways has a different audience partially a different audience because you've got a built-in spider-man audience but i mean it it you could see that end game you know they they looked at that and they just said you know we're not going to have another one of these for a while unless they can get the russos to come back and do secret wars which they haven't announced, you know. I mean, the Russos have said they want to do that, but we don't know if they're gonna. Yeah, we. But will, I, we will see. Yeah. I but think I, I, I think they'll get them back down. if they want to do it, and I think they'll get them back to do it because, uh, you know, it's almost like a, a license to print money. Mm-hmm. So th- and yet, I'm Sony sorry, looks like, and, and we just just heard this today. It looks like Apple may be trying to buy Sony out, and so that could further affect the uh, Spider-Man rights and uh how they want to handle that with marvel yeah that'll be interesting to see where that goes but i think you know the way marvel stands right now uh i think if if they can't include spider-man they kind of feel like they've told the story they have to tell but if they can include him they've set themselves up that they could tell more so i I think i think marvel's in a good situation as far as that goes they've kind of made him the center of the Marvel Universe by be having him as the heir apparent to Tony. Well, I see right now I feel like there is no center. Yeah, true. I, I feel like they can go in whatever direction they want to, and if they have the rights to Spider-Man, they can go with that. Because uh, they but, don't But now they're also going into Spider-Man as the, you know, Spider-Man the menace who is entrusted by society, so it's a little bit mm-hmm. more true to the character I grew up with uh, than what we've seen in the first two Spider-Man movies. Not that I haven't enjoyed those. Uh, I did, but it's, you know, definitely not the character I grew up with. Uh, so we'll see what, what happens with the licensing, because that's going to decide everything on that. Yep. Uh, yeah. the, the next email is from Jack Bond, and he, he offers an alternative to the Jaws scale, and he calls it, is it the Is It Frankenstein scale. It's mm. Frankenstein, an all-time great classic epic-defining film. Brighter Frankenstein, as good if not better, an all-time classic epic-defining film. Son of Frankenstein, an enjoyable film with some flaws, but worthy of multiple rewatchings. Ghost of Frankenstein, a bad movie. Frankenstein meets the werewolf. Somehow, the ideas of two great films combine to make an enjoyable film. House of Frankenstein, a moderately enjoyable film. House of Dracula, was this trip necessary? And Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Somehow, the two, the ideas of two great films combine to make another great film. So that, that's uh, Jack's suggestion, I guess, for for another scale. Uh, I don't I don't know if I, if I can uh, incorporate that, but it's definitely uh, amusing. Okay, somebody out there, right now, what I want you to do is write a Star Wars scale, okay? Because obviously you got Star Wars, the first one, which is great because it's the first one. It sets the tone. But then you have Empire Strikes Back, which is in always a better film. And yet you have Star Wars. I th- make the Star Wars scale, somebody. Go ahead, write that up. <laughs> okay. I have I'm another, sorry. <laughs> another email is from uh, Russell Bragg. On Singing in the Rain. Hey, Paul. Yes, I am that far behind, but I'm slowly catching up. This was a great episode. My history with Singing in the Rain is I can't remember a time I haven't been aware of it. 
It's my mom's favorite musical movie. So when I was a kid, whenever it was on TV, that's what we watched. I could be wrong or misremembering, but I believe mom saw this in the theater. Great dancing, good songs, all of which make you feel good and exhausted, just watching all the action. Whenever I think of the great Gene Kelly, I think of Singing in the Rain and the Muppet Show he guested on. Throughout the show, Kermit is trying to get Gene to sing Singing in the Rain, but he won't do it until the end. That is, I believe you mentioned... Until the end, that is. I believe you mentioned that's entertainment. Have you watched all three movies? I found a three-movie Blu-ray set a while back and thoroughly enjoyed them all. I'd seen the first two. I never saw the third one, Russell. Of course, you know that's entertainment was all about MGM musicals. That's Entertainment 2 was focused on comedy, drama, and some musicals hosted by Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire. And That's Entertainment 3 focused on some of the musical stars, such as Gene Kelly, Ann Miller, Lena Horne, and Howard Keel. Each Blu-ray is chock full of extras, with de- including deleted scenes not seen before. It was well worth the money I paid, which I don't remember how much. Anyway, I'd better get... I'd better close for now. Thank you for covering this movie and for keeping me entertained at work. I think I need to watch this one again soon. Luckily, I have the Blu-ray handy. I believe it's the 60th anniversary edition. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia. Thank you for that, Rusty. I appreciate it. I have one last email. I'm just happy to have emails because I hadn't really had any before. Uh, This one is from Blaine Dowler, who's been on several episodes. Hi, Paul. I confessed I'm behind a few episodes. If I've seen the movie you discussed recently, it jumps to the top of the queue. If it's been a while, it goes to the bottom of the queue, which has about 400 podcasts in it at the moment. As a result, I've only caught up to your Buckaroo Banzai coverage today. I'm only about halfway through, but I completely understand your convince me this is not Jaws 4 attitude. The first time I had ever heard of this movie was when I was in 7th grade. My sister brought her first boyfriend over to our house for the first time, and he said he didn't respect the Academy Awards because Buckaroo Banzai didn't even get a nomination. (laughs) After he told us who was in the cast, we agreed to give it a chance. On his second time over, he brought a copy with him. After seeing this movie, I realized that my sister deserved a, a better... Excuse my sister deserved better than a boyfriend who thought this was an Academy Award winning material in any way, shape, or form. As a direct result of this movie, I made a conscious choice to make his life a living hell for the duration of their relationship. In the end, my sister married a far better man, and her first boyfriend became a hypnotist who is no longer <laughs> able to book any venues in a 12 hour driving radius because his volunteers keep breaking arms and legs after jumping off of tables, pianos, etc. I think I made the right call. (laughs) (laughs) My God. That's a great email, Blaine, and a great story. (laughs) And uh, so you and I are in the same camp on on Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, You know, what can I tell you? I wasn't a fan. You know, I love everything around Buckaroo Banzai except the movie. (laughs) And and I, I, I... you know, the thing is, I own a copy of it. I, I've shown it to my son, who really enjoyed it, but he hasn't gone back and watched it. Um, and it's one of those things, like the video that they do at the very end. Just love it. Just love it. But I can't remember the last time I actually sat through the whole movie. Well, I, the last time I sat through it will probably be the only time I will ever sit through it. <laughs> so, all right, that's it for my email. Thank you for indulging me and allowing me to read that. And thank you for coming on tonight. Oh, it was my pleasure. Why don't you tell everybody where they could find you before we uh, call it a night? 
Third Degree Burn is a Two True Freaks internet radio network show. We're at twotruefreaks.com. Of course, you can find us on, what do they call iTunes now? I don't know. I don't even uh, know. It's not iTunes anymore? Uh, it's something else, like Apple Music or Apple Tunes or I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, you can find us there as well. Uh, I do show up from time to time on Weekly Heroics with Scott McGregor. And uh, we we just uh, been doing some preacher cast. Uh, there'll be a new episode of of uh, Third Degree Burn coming out here soon. We'll recover uh, Starbrand issue eleven. So that's John Burns' first issue of Starbrand. Uh, and that is a that's a that was a really fun episode to go over. It's just him and myself now after the Dark Phoenix event. So lots of fun. All right, tune in everybody, and thank, thank you. you thank you all for listening. And we'll see you two weeks with the next movie, whatever that may be. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.